I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey, and welcome again to another episode of The Pink Elephant. We are now eight episodes in and I hope that you are really getting something out of it. I hope that it is taking you deeper in your faith and helping you discover those missing pieces because for me, that's what it's all about. In this episode, I want to talk about a subject that I am very passionate about, and that is surrender. You know, sometimes I don't think this word is very helpful because for the average person, the reference point for such a word is a battlefield where one army surrenders to another. Whilst that can be apt in describing our relationship with God prior to accepting Jesus, it's not accurate in describing our relationship after we receive Jesus. We're no longer in opposition. Nevertheless, I will continue to use the word for the sake of this podcast episode. Interestingly, the word surrender itself isn't really used in scripture, certainly not in the manner in which we use it in Christian community. The more common words used in scripture to describe this kind of phenomenon is yielding or submitting. But let's stop playing semantics. What is surrender? So many of our greatest worship songs over the centuries have used this word, demonstrating this unique quality in our relationship with God. But basically, it just means the process of giving ourselves up, which may mean giving up our dreams, our desires, certain relationships, our plans, all as an act of relinquishing control. Now, I would hazard a guess that in almost all cases, a new believer is unlikely to be able to give up on every part of themselves to God immediately after receiving Jesus. In fact, they probably wouldn't even understand why they would need to surrender. And most non-believers would probably find it weird too. But the process of making Jesus our Lord and not just our Savior depends on this process. And that is why surrender is this ongoing journey for every believer. A journey that I have to admit I see very few modern Christians adopting in their walk with Jesus. I'm just being honest. There seems to be a significantly smaller number of believers that are thinking, how can I be more surrendered or submitted to God? It's just not nearly as common a message or as common a discussion point. But it is a critical value if we intend to live the fullness of faith that God said we could. See, I believe that the journey to becoming a mature Christian is not about gaining more knowledge or knowing more scripture or being more stable or serving in a church or giving or any other description that is often used to determine if someone is mature in their faith. These are often the qualities church leaders are looking for to determine if a person is growing. And I get it. I understand. But the Bible has far more to say on what it takes to be a disciple, as you will discover through this episode. My observations are, that the Christian journey is one of continued and ever-increasing surrender, which has sometimes involved walking away from things that seem spiritual to others out of obedience to God. You know, I immediately think of John the Baptist. If we aren't moved out of sheer worship to give up more of ourselves to God now than we did a year ago, we ought to ask ourselves whether we've really been allowing God to work in our lives. So let me explain something. God does want to change us, 
but he isn't trying to change everything about us. He is only trying to change those things that cause us to be selfish or that make it hard for us to love him and love other people as he defines love. Sin at its core is self-serving and self-debasing. It's actually evidence that we don't love ourselves. It harms societies and it harms ourselves. Hence why it is at the core of God's change management plan. He's not trying to change your personality and your likes and your gifts and your talents. He actually likes you. So when we break off these hindrances, though, that God is always leading us to do, if we're paying attention to his invitations, naturally we should love better. We will love more, more and more people, and our love will also be more complete in its expression. And we can receive God's love better for ourselves when there are fewer hindrances in the way we interpret his love. So to my knowledge, there are five kinds of surrender. I'm sure they all intermingle, but these are the specific kinds of surrender that I have observed, at least in my own life. Number one, surrendering relationships. This may include severing harmful relationships, surrendering those selfish expectations we have of our spouse or our children, of our parents, of our siblings, of our pastors and leaders, or our church members if you are a leader. As long as you are a believer, the Holy Spirit will be leading you to some type of surrender within your relationships. It makes sense, right? Because people are God's most valuable creation. He loves people. And if I am standing in the way of his ability to love them well through me, then he is going to bring to the surface the dysfunctional ways in which I am relating to ensure that I get better at letting him love them through me. Number two surrendering a process. There are times when you have to go through something and it may grow you, it may mold you, and it may even heal you. The times I have journeyed with young adult ladies that have gone through a breakup, this painfully common statement tends to be blurted out at some point. Why is this taking so long? Shouldn't I be over this by now? Well, the reality is nobody actually knows how long healing really takes. In the midst of pain, we can make some assumptions about what's normal, but chances are it's probably going to take longer than you thought. This is an example of surrendering the process. Pain has its own timer, and try though you might, you can't force it to heal quicker. It's the same with gardening. If you have ever had a go at planting carrots, you know that besides ensuring the right conditions, you know, sunlight, the correct amount of water, the soil, and, you know, planting it at the right time of year, besides all of that, you can't do nothing to make that carrot grow faster. It will take how long it will take. The only control you have is making sure the conditions are right. So whether it's some attitudinal change, healing, or the process of becoming more like Jesus, it would benefit us to surrender that process to him. It's the only way we can be completely sure that the process actually happens and that it finishes well. Number three, surrendering our calling. We are all called to do certain things on this earth. I'm not really just talking about career either. Some of us are called to be parents and some of us are called to be grandparents. I don't know. We're all called to different things, right? 
I, I should add this though. I don't necessarily think that we are called to one thing in life. I think it can change. You know, David was a shepherd, but he became a king. I was a counselor. Then I became a church leader and then a pastor. And now I'm a writer and a communicator. So yeah, I think we can do a lot of things. I think we can be called to a lot of different things. But the point is we do have these assignments that God gives us to do in life. We somehow deciphered the voice of God, even if it is far less spiritual than that, and know that this is what we were meant to do. The not so great thing about our calling, though, is that we have a tendency to become really possessive of it. I'm raising my hand right now, you know, like I am so guilty of this. I've definitely tried to make things happen in my own strength and in my own timing because I was just so driven to do what I felt called to do. The fact is, and leaders pay attention, having been one of them, I know that you need to pay attention. The call of God is not actually ours. It's his call and we get to respond, but we don't own the call And we certainly aren't entitled to it or anything it brings to our life. It's his decision to call us and he can change it if he wants. Pastors, your church, sorry to say, but it's not actually yours. It's God's. Okay, moving along. Number four, surrendering the flesh. Yes, so in some cases this is a process and sometimes it's not. I've heard of people who have been instantly healed of alcoholism and others that have had to go through counselling and AA meetings and et cetera, et cetera. Either way, the journey of becoming a more obedient follower of Christ is also a journey that requires surrender. Sometimes when we see so much wrong with ourselves, we can eagerly pursue change. But our reason for change is not supposed to be because we sense inadequacy or because we don't want to make mistakes. It's supposed to be our offering so that he gets the glory for the transformation. It says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The responsibility of completing this good work in us is God's. Well, I mean, he began it, didn't he? Our job is just to keep responding to his invitations to grow and change. And lastly, number five, surrendering an outcome. It is an incredibly frustrating and painful truth to reconcile, but the fact is that all of our faithfulness does not guarantee our desired outcome. I find it so painful reading Hebrews 11 verse 13, where it says that all of these people who in faith believed never saw their promise come to pass. They died before it happened. The author says it again too in verse 39. I read it and I'm like, no, like, please, Lord, let me still be here to see your promises come to pass. Look, I really don't want to be the person who tells you what you don't want to hear, but the outcome we would love, the result that we are looking for and dreaming of, well, we're meant to surrender that too. Faithfulness is supposed to be motivated by a desire to be faithful, not to get what we want. You know, I love the story of Joseph. I've heard so many people preach about Joseph that he had a dream and he didn't give up on that dream. And gosh, it sounds so like inspiring, right? But actually the text is really not explicit about that. We don't even know whether he wanted the dream he had. 
based on the way he cries frequently throughout the narrative about his family, I wonder whether he would have just preferred to live out his days with his father. The text says that God gave him a dream. It also doesn't really say that he was faithful to that dream. He was just faithful wherever he was. He, like us, didn't know how exactly that dream would come to pass or even if he would be alive to see it. And yet he surrendered the outcome. Thankfully for him, the outcome was good. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes you work your behind off in a church and it gets shut down. Sometimes you love your kids like crazy and they hate you and don't want to speak to you. Sometimes you are so faithful to your spouse and they are unfaithful to you. The outcome of our faithfulness is not predictable, nor is it guaranteed. What faithfulness does guarantee is that God will be pleased with you and that God will honor your faithfulness at some point. And so we must surrender the outcome, whether it is in our favor or not. Yeah, you're probably getting a pretty good picture right now that surrender really isn't for the faint-hearted. And, and you're totally right. It is not something you can do without a deep knowledge of Jesus and this ongoing redemptive work in your life. It is probably not something that you could walk out without a growing respect and acknowledgement of his loving kindness. It can't be done apart from relationship. That's what I'm trying to say. So let's go a little bit deeper. In Romans 12 verse 1, Paul has just unpacked at length this idea of grace. He then says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In another version, it says that this is your reasonable worship. Paul is basically saying, because of everything God has done for us, giving up his life and body, even just coming to earth when he could have stayed in heaven, it's only reasonable that our pure, worshipful response be to offer ourselves to the one who became an offering for all. See, when God asks us to follow him with complete surrender, he's only asking us to do what he has already done. Jesus surrendered every and any personal agenda he could have had to complete this mission. He didn't get married. He didn't pursue a career. He didn't have children. He didn't get himself a decadent home. He surrendered his life for us. Thousands of years later, he is still serving us via the Holy Spirit, giving, loving us, listening to us, sharing with us, speaking to us, prompting us, protecting us, saving us, leading us, encountering us, answering us, healing us, comforting, pursuing us, patiently waiting, divinely coordinating, intimately, passionately loving and serving us. This is who we are offering ourselves to as Saviour who continues to give himself in selflessness to the body of Christ and this world. In the book of Hosea, God asks him to marry a woman who is known to be an adulteress because he wants to express the narrative of his relationship with the Israelite people through the life of Hosea. I've actually mentioned this in a previous episode. Now, I remember when I was around 20 years of age, I read this book and I was stunned. 
How surrendered to God could Hosea have been if he was willing to marry an untrustable woman for life? Also that God could speak through his story. And I made this zealous and bold commitment to God. I wanted my life to be his story, even if it had me humiliated, rejected and excluded. Much to my dismay, God has answered my prayer a fair few times. And as much hardship as that process has attracted, I don't regret it. I would do it all again. So why do we even need to talk about this? Like, Why would we need to talk about surrender? What are we not seeing about surrender? As a society, we are very uncomfortable with the idea that we might not have control. In fact, we are quite ignorant of how little control we actually have. Our biblical ancestors knew that so little was in their power. When it came to authority, they didn't vote in their leaders. Many of their leaders were ruthless conquerors and dictators that forced their dominion upon them. In our day, particularly in the Western world, we can elect our leaders and we know that we have the collective power to force change. Our biblical ancestors' financial status was also often controlled by the elements, rain or lack thereof, fire, cold. Now, this is still true for us today, particularly in the case of farmers, but because most of us sit in an office on our laptop writing emails and sipping lattes in meetings, we can be oblivious to the fact that the elements have such a say in our future. So we take charge of our lives and careers, changing jobs, climbing ladders, never thinking that some outside force could rattle the clearly laid out five-year goals we've made. We think the only barrier to us controlling our future is if our goals weren't clear enough. Our biblical ancestors' health was influenced by whether food was scarce and whether there was a priest that could heal your sickness. Now we go to the shops and the only thing that stands in our way of having food is whether we overspent on Uber Eats this week or if it's lockdown and panic buying has ensued. And we don't get to a priest for healing. We go to multiple different kinds of doctors. There's a doctor for everything. We take medications. We have operations, generally with a high rate of success. And the government or our private health insurance pays for a decent proportion of that, at least in Australia. The point is... We have a facade of control because of sheer ignorance. We don't see how little control we have, so we assume we are in control until something like COVID comes to burst our little bubble. COVID just cleared the fog so that we could see a truth that we've been avoiding for some time. We don't have that much power. How could we? We don't even have that much control over ourselves. The byproduct is that something like surrender is not a natural practice for us. We aren't in the habit of actively letting go. So then God asks us to surrender and we continue to interpret our relationship with him within the context of a life experience where we think we have all the power over our present and future. When we hear a message like surrender, it doesn't compute. Our sense of entitlement kicks in. Nobody has a right to take my power. I can do what I want. Okay, sure, sure you can do what you want. But the truth is, 
you can do what you want if it's within a set of circumstances that are generally accessible to people like you, if you have the correct amount of money and or resources, if you are in the right place at the right time, if you know people and those people aren't also pursuing their own wants, assuming that the things you have right now aren't affected by what you want. Hmm. Now, that doesn't really seem to me like we have as much control over what we want. <laughs> Just saying. The irony is we are constantly giving away control. When we vote someone in, it might be our preferred candidate, but we are giving power to this person to do things on our behalf for our country. Even if you like the person and prefer their policies, they still can basically do what they want as long as it's constitutional for the next four years or whatever the specific time frame is for your country. The only risk for them is not being popular and being voted out the next election. Big deal. They still got what they want and they still get a paycheck for the rest of their lives. When you go to the doctors and follow their prescribed treatment plan, you are submitting to their power of knowledge and hopefully they get it right. When we go to the grocery store to get our food, which we probably don't have a huge choice on when we live in metropolitan areas, you are surrendering the entire process of procurement and storage as determined by that grocery store. We all know that the major grocery store chains freeze their fruit, but we still buy it because we surrender our need to know the details of that process in exchange for convenience. What about social media though? We know that they use analytics and the like to give us what we want to hear and to see, much of which may not be good for us, much of which increases our likelihood to hate and to be jealous. But we knowingly give control over to that system every time we open up the app. We give away control willingly all the time to entities and people who have far less interest in our lives and far less interest in our well-being than God. So here's the thing, God isn't trying to control you. When he asks you to yield or to give way to him, it is not so that he can control us. He doesn't control anyone and he still makes it your choice to surrender. There are no passages whatsoever in scripture that affirm this idea that God controls us. Even when we say God is in control, like over the world, that is not completely accurate. He reigns. He has supreme power, but he isn't some puppet master controlling everyone's actions. Jesus wasn't controlled by the Father. He chose everything he endured willingly. So when he is asking you to yield, he is asking you to lay down the desire to be in control, even though we ultimately aren't. He is asking us to bring down the walls and the limitations and give him access to every part of us, just as he has given us access to every part of him. There isn't a hint of control in it. He is asking us to willingly allow him to be our leader, a leader that intimately knows those who follow him and cares deeply that you aren't controlled by anything, including sin, the greatest oppressor this world has ever known. Let me ask you this. If you are going to surrender to someone, because obviously we are all submitting and surrendering to so many forces that we ignorantly trust every day, wouldn't it make more sense to surrender to God who can be trusted? 
as I do in every episode. I now want to bring this back to the whole point of this podcast. There is something missing in our faith. So you know I'd only be talking about something like this if it holds some hope of resolving that specific issue. So how does surrender, or lack thereof, contribute to this overall feeling that something is missing? With everything we know about God and life and what he will do with this earth and everything we know about eternity, it seems as though our attachment to this life is quite redundant. And yet we are so attached to this life. We are constantly trying to build a more comfortable, more pleasing life for ourselves, knowing full well that none of it helps us in the life after this, nor anyone else. And all of what we have here will most likely pass away. Even our spouses probably won't be our spouses in the life we live after we rise again. And yet our lives revolve around them and around this rat race. The rat race is run by rats, people, which makes us the rats. This is not a flattering analogy for us. Just consider this. Jesus actually goes so far to say in Matthew 5 that if your eyes or your hand impedes on your ability to stay faithful, cut it out and cut it off. Leave it behind rather than leaving your soul behind. If there is anything that interferes with your ability to be consumed with love for Jesus, if there is anything that interrupts your ability to be unwavering in faithfulness to follow him in any aspect of your life, it is not worth it. We are far too attached to this life and all that we can have in it, more attached than we are to Jesus. And then we wonder why we are still hungry and why we are still thirsty. When Jesus called himself the bread of life, he was telling us that we must feed on him. If we ever want to be free from spiritual hunger, we must feed on him. Even the Last Supper, he asked the disciples to eat of his flesh, which is the bread, and drink of his blood, which was the wine. Obviously, this is all symbolic, but he is saying that only he can sustain our souls. Anything else that we feed on simultaneously enslaves us. And we are far too invested at that point to know the difference. Even good things. I love my daughter, but if being her mother was the only thing that fed my soul, my soul would eventually die and I wouldn't actually be a great mum. And this is why we must continue to follow Jesus, stripping away anything that clouds our vision of him. He knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, he knows all and he is worthy of our submission. Okay, let's go deeper again. So some of us are listening to this thinking, yep, I know all about this surrendering thing, Mel. I decided to do it a long time ago because we are safe when we are in the will of God. Yes, yeah, so I remember hearing this and repeating this statement as well when I was a young adult. But now looking back, I think, sorry, what exactly do we think God's will will keep us safe from? In Acts 20, verse 22 to 24, the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian leaders whom he has been with for three years. These are some of the last statements he makes to them. 
And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, over the course of my Christian life, I have heard so many sermons about storms. The basic outline is that when we are going through storms, Jesus is with us and he will get us through. Underpinning every storm message is the idea that the goal is to eventually get out of the storm. Never have I heard a message encouraging believers to run toward the storm like Paul is doing here. So many of Paul's followers and friends were warning him and pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem because they all knew what was awaiting his arrival, harsh persecution and probably death. Now, why in the world and how in the world could Paul have had the courage to walk toward such an obviously ill fate? Surrendering to his will doesn't keep us safe from hardship. In fact, sometimes it will have us walking toward it. I can run toward the storm, not because the storm doesn't scare me, but because I know that all I need to thrive in that storm can be found in the person of Jesus. That's what I call godly resilience. When you are able to look toward him for all your strength and not to the circumstances to aid your comfort, you have developed the greatest quality any believer could have, godly resilience. The kind of resilience that we hear about so much is defined as the ability to adapt and bounce back when you have a curveball thrown at you. Godly resilience is when our ability to adapt is based in a history of giving things over to God. It is a direct product of surrender. Being able to relent when we could fight, being able to stand firm when we could act, being able to listen when we could speak being able to love when we could hate, being able to forgive when we could punish, delegating authority when we could enforce. These kingdom principles happen because we get comfortable with letting things go. Because letting things go isn't like shaking out a blanket and watching the dust dissipate in the air. For those who follow him, letting go is more like an exchange. When we surrender, when we lay it all down, we are simultaneously making space for him and every spiritual blessing that he represents. In Mark 8, verse 34 to 36, Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? The language in this passage is so forward. It says must. You must deny yourself. It is implying that to be deemed a disciple, a follower of Jesus, 
Denying yourself and taking up your cross is the central criterion. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. Wow, this is not a fluffy message. Jesus is so boldly laying it down. In Jesus' time, the cross represented death. If a person were to carry their cross, it would mean that they were walking the path to crucifixion. This is really intense imagery. To take up our cross then is to agree and commit to walk out the road of putting to death the sinful nature and its selfish desires. It is consenting to crucifying those things within us that only seek to serve our most basic fleshly responses. The second part of this verse says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Here's the conundrum that Jesus is so aptly announcing. In this life, you will lose something. But Jesus is also helping us out by acknowledging that there is a good loss and there is a not so good loss. The good type of loss is one that you choose. The bad type of loss is chosen for you. The good kind of loss will have you gain every conceivable spiritual benefit that exists. The bad kind of loss will have you gain whatever temporary fleeting thing it is that you have right now in this moment. Paul described his former life as rubbish in light of Christ. Rubbish! And I agree with you, Paul. I can never turn my back on what I know about Christ, even if it makes me a failure in the world's eyes and a weirdo to my family. We gain far more than we lose when we take up our cross. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.